Hey, it's uh, Taylor Trash, fly fishing with a little special episode. We're coming to you live from the Taylor Park here in Oak Hill, Florida, and uh, we have the great privilege of having a guest with us this evening that uh, many of you have heard before on a Beer With episode. Episode 7. Episode lucky number 7, Jesse Wales. Uh, we've known Jesse since she worked at Marine Discovery Center and has since moved onward and upward in her career. And she's now with the National Estuary Program. Yes. Uh, specifically with One Lagoon, which is the regional program here for the Indian River Lagoon. Mm-hmm. And welcome, Jesse. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. Super glad to have you here. This is this is pretty rad. You know, it's like uh, having worked with you, you know, from the early days and the beginnings of the dinghy derby. And then we had the thingy before the dinghy plus the dinghy derby. And you, you kind of were growing. Our, we're, our event was growing. And then you sent a text one day and said, I'm leaving. And we're like, what's going on? But you were leaving for bigger, better things, which is awesome. Yes, um, and still a huge advocate for Marine Discovery Center and everything that they're working on. Absolutely. So um, I think it's going to be a, a, a great opportunity for myself. Uh, I won't speak for Ben or Jameson. Um, I've always known uh, about One Lagoon. Um, I'll admittedly tell you I don't know a whole lot about One Lagoon. Um, but I do have the T-shirt and wear it proudly. Yep. Um, and um, that's where we're going to kind of lean on you to uh, bring us up to speed on what the program's about and what the program's currently doing and what we as anglers and citizens that are very interested in conservation for the estuary that we all love, one love, um, can do and can expect uh, to see over the next few years. Yeah, definitely. I would love to expand on that. All right. (laughs) So One Lagoon is part of the Indian River Lagoon National Estuary Program. Um, We are the IRL Council, the Indian River Lagoon Council. We're a special district in Florida, and we receive funding from the Environmental Protection Agency to form different projects um, and give funding to partners for all of this wonderful restoration and research. Um, So annually, we give out about a million dollars worth of funds for water quality improvements, restoration projects, and research projects. Um, So we advocate for the lagoon up in D.C., um, talking to all the bigwigs to make sure that they know about us down here. Nice. So when it comes to um, your budget, it's federal dollars only. Um, the state of Florida may be involved, like, you know, say if Jameson and I were um, part of a nonprofit or we were students at, at a um, school and we had applied for a grant, that grant may get funding from your organization 
and then maybe potentially matching from like the yeah. state of Florida, something yes. like that. Yeah, so you can get matching grants. Um, we also have a license plate. So shout out to those of you who do have the Indian River Lagoon license plate. Those funds come back to the NEP and we're able to distribute them out for small grants. So those grants are focused on educating folks about the lagoon and small restoration projects. Now, which which license plate no, is... Yeah. So um, I'm really excited, actually. We just redesigned it, too. So they're okay. finally out. Okay. So I don't know when you guys are getting your new plates, but hopefully soon. Um, so it has a red lighthouse on it. I won't tell you if it's Ponce Inlet or Jupiter. I, I like to say it's Ponce Inlet. And it has a snook and a mangrove. Okay. Heck yeah. So Rad. you guys have seen that one before, but we yeah. just redesigned it. So it looks a lot more natural, a lot more real. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful plate. All right. I know what I'm getting next time. I'm going <laughs> yeah. yeah. to give my money to anybody. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm... Have to shamefully admit. I know who yours is. That, and, and, and I didn't realize who mine Nerd. went to. I, I just uh, liked the artwork and went with the uh, redfish tail <laughs> plate. And then I found out it's the sons of bitches that are putting kidnapping, kidnapping our redfish, and then doing hatchery shenanigans. We'll call them. So um, yeah, I'll be replacing my plate soon as well. Um, so. You're new to a position at the One Lagoon. Uh, basically, you are in charge of like community outreach. Yeah, so I'm the community engagement coordinator, coordinator. Excuse me for the northern region. So okay. I handle Volusia down to like Merritt Island, Cocoa Beach, um, Rockledge areas. Okay. Yeah. So the whole goal of that is to get the word out about what Lagoon One Lagoon is doing and podcasts like this are one of the great ways to do it. Public presentations with different um, groups and classes and stuff like that. And to really sit in and be an advocate for the lagoon during uh, county council meetings and city council meetings. So if I'm the average angler citizen um, interested party that wants to become more involved with uh, steering um, restoration work um mitigation work, whatever, you know, the project would fall under, what are some of the more important places that I should be paying attention to is so that I know that, you know, oh, there's a new agenda out and there's going to be a meeting here. Um, I believe you just referenced when we were offline getting ready for the show that um, you had just went to a meeting and I have like 10 second Tom problems. And you, it's the Save Our Indian River Lagoon. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So uh, Citizen Oversight Committee meeting, and all of those are public meetings. Um, but you can learn about our meetings on our website. They're all public, open to the public. Um, the board meeting streams online. You just kind of have to be in the know about what's going on in the county. So, um, But if you want to go on the website, my contact information is there. And I love when people email me questions or concerns because I'm able to bring that to everyone and say, this is what people are talking about. How can we work on this? Right. So um, I believe you brought up an instance um, at this most recent meeting that there was a perception of, um, you know, a problem. Yes. That that was ongoing uh, here in our area, specifically like Mosquito Lagoon, North Indian River Lagoon, with uh, regards to 
some of do we call it shoreline restoration work or is it uh, oyster um, reef restoration? It's both. So there okay. are, there are some concerns with both. Yeah. And I, I think um, let's let's back up a little bit and give some history. Um, you know, as a layperson, because uh, I certainly can tell you without a doubt i've never been to any of these meetings um not to say that i don't read and and try to keep up with some of the the stuff that's going on um i just haven't found myself going to these meetings um there's been other things that have taken my time you know that that i've prioritized over that um from the time i've been fishing out here um Oyster restoration started happening. Oyster reef restoration. And I remember the first time I probably saw um, one of those restoration projects. Um, I was very shocked at what I saw. Um, And it was, I I referred to it as like a, a bag of citrus, like a citrus bag that was filled with, um, you know, recycled oyster shell and basically just stacked along the shoreline. Almost like how, have you guys ever seen how, like, if somebody puts a culvert in uh-huh. and they'll they'll put, you know, like, quick creep bags. bags around it and those quick creep bags kind of firm up. So that that's kind of what I was seeing. And I was like, man, that's just ugly. Um, and then there was a combination of not just the bags, but then there were, like, plastic mats that you know it's almost like a mesh mat plastic and and then it was Mm -hmm. zip tied and what i always found funny was what they used to hold them down was the little donuts that you put around a um, sprinkler sprinkler (laughs) and uh you know over time you could see like if they were really close to a channel that was getting run a lot um they would come dislodged and it went from being like you know, a pristine, like, football checkerboard pattern down the shoreline to, you know, just kind of mamby-pamby here and there. Um, But then over time, that kind of changed, and you kind of saw that methodology go away. Um, And, you know, I think currently we're at a point where I think the status quo is the, the concrete and jute uh, cement and jute is being tried as well as uh, the galvanized uh, mm-hmm. yep. wire basket. That's the one that we helped. Yeah, we helped on those. Um, and, and you know, over that time, the one thing I found out was these things don't happen haphazard. Um, there's actually a process to them. So, you know, can you address or, or talk about kind of, you know, what a process would look like when it comes to a project like that, whether it's, you know, the, the, the OG fruit bags? Because, yeah. I, I mean, I believe you even said those are still being used currently in other in places. Other, yep, definitely. Yeah, yeah so, um, that, yeah, that's we started out using the Naltex mesh bags. That was the status quo for a lot of projects. Everybody is using them around the U.S., Um, putting them out onto the shoreline to create a wave break, to create um, a place for oysters to settle on, planting mangroves behind it. Like that is what we're doing for restoration down in Mosquito Lagoon. Um, But we understand how 
you know, hypocritical it is to be doing a microplastic study <laughs> and then also putting out plastic oyster bags and oyster mats. Um, so University of Central Florida and Marine Discovery Center are working together to come up with a new non-plastic alternative, but that takes time, right? So it really starts in a setting like this where we're hanging out at a table, just having a conversation, thinking about how can we replicate what is working without using any plastic? We come up with an idea. We come up with a budget. It's going to cost like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 for a pilot project that's 150 feet long, Right. So now we have to find funding for that. So we write grants to the NEP, um, to NSF, to um, Restore America's Estuaries, whoever we can. We write a grant, and hopefully that grant gets funded. So in the instance of the NEP, we're writing that grant in January, hoping that it gets funded by October, and then we can start the project. If it gets funded... We will start the project in October. We'll build all of the materials. That's when the fun work starts, right? That's when we right. actually figure out how to make all this stuff we said we were going to make. Um, we make it all. We put it out onto this one site that is con considered a pilot project, and we monitor it, monitor it, monitor it. We are out there monitoring day one. It's after seven days, after one month, two months, three months, and then from there it goes on to six-month monitoring and then annually monitoring. So we're out there constantly looking at it to see, is it growing any oysters? Is it breaking down too fast? Is it leaching chemicals into the environment? Are our plants sticking around? Are we accreting sediment? There is a group of scientists, grad students, and undergrads that go out to these sites monthly to look at them. If they're collecting that data and, and charting that data, do they have to submit that data back to like the NEP? They do, yeah. So um, when in for the NEP, they are submitting um, quarterly reports to us with monitoring updates, um, and then they submit a final report to us. Now, all those final reports are public and available on our website. So um, that is something that we are working on doing right now is getting that whole group of um, different final reports all the way back from like 2013 up onto our website. So you'll be able to read through that data and see for yourself that, hey, it's working or it's not working. So at the end of that one year, um, if it's working, great. We keep it in. We continue to monitor it. We are not getting paid to keep monitoring that project, but we want to make sure it's working. If it's working after a year, we start applying for more funds to expand on it. If it doesn't work, we take it out. We take it out, we chalk it up as a loss, and we move on to the next thing. Now, the problem with that is that if it doesn't work, we don't want to just leave this recently restored reef to degrade again. So now we are back to square one. We have to find funding to come up with a new idea, to come up with a new project so that we can go back in, take out that material that's not working, and put in a new material that will work. So that's what we're working on. And when I say we, I mean uh, University of Central Florida Marine Discovery Center. But um, in my new position, I still get to help out with it, which is awesome. We are actually going back in, taking out all of those derelict plastic mats and putting in these new non-plastic alternatives. So we have received grant funding from three different sources to do this work. So we're really excited about that. Who determines or selects the sites where... 
this work goes on? So currently in the Mosquito Lagoon, there is one group that is doing this work. Um, it is Dr. Linda Walters. She has a lab at University of Central Florida, the Coastal and Estuarine um, Ecology Lab, C-Lab. She is the one um, picking those sites for oyster reefs. Her colleague, Dr. Melinda Donnelly, is picking the sites for um, shoreline restoration. Okay. Now, um, Canaveral National Seashore, the park managers and the park biologists have a huge say in where those are. So in the terms of like shoreline restoration, they're picking a lot of sites that are culturally significant and sensitive that are starting to erode away. Um, in oyster restoration, they're picking a lot of the sites that um, per, um, pose navigational hazards um, and are not really being utilized um, or being run over by boats and stuff like that. Interesting that, I mean, the idea that the National Park Service, who clearly have probably surveyed their lands that they, they're looking after and, you know, culturally significant and say, well, due to wake erosion or just changes in hydrology, um, you know, um, I always get a little caught up in the minutia of blaming boat wakes and thinking that that's kind of a wrong way to go about things uh, because you alienate a large stakeholder group. Um, I would agree. And, yeah. And, and, and discount away just natural erosion, you know, right. shorelines change. Um, if they didn't, we wouldn't have the Grand Canyon. Right. And, right. and you know how wide Mosquito Lagoon can sure. be. Like that fetch is going to be huge and throw huge wakes up onto the shoreline. Absolutely. Um, we see it all the time during horseshoe crab nesting when it's pushing the tide up on shore. So it's definitely not just right. wakes. But go back to, you know, if they've identified areas, and I, I'm going to guess that, you know, probably anywhere from uh, Turtle Mound down through Castle Windy, you know, you've got shell middens that you don't want to see them continue to slough off and you lose those artifacts exactly and things. So they're trying to figure out, well, how do we buttress this? And there are Native American burial grounds, too, that are out in the middle of the lagoon that we don't personally know where they are, but the, um, the Park Service does. Oh, wow. And we're trying to work on those as well. So that could explain some of the shorelines because, you know, there, there has been recently... Um, a very vocal minority of folks that uh, just seem to be focused on what's wrong and not what solutions are available or helping folks understand what's going on. Um, and it's like, well, you know, I just don't like it being on that shoreline. It doesn't look right. Um, how can you restore a shoreline if it's already natural. Right. I've, I've been here for 15 years and there's never been oysters here. Right. Yeah. So, you know, in the grand scheme of 15 years in the life of the lagoon, you know, pretty much a lifer. Um, there could be other reasons at play. And the idea that, like you were saying you, know, you tried the, the one methodology and it just wasn't quite working out. So you're going to have to remove it and replace it with the next. It's, it's, there's, it's called the scientific method, I believe, mm -hmm. um, where you test. And, yep, and you replicate it and you, multiple times. <laughs> right, and, and you confirm your data. You, 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 know, you, you have actionable data that says 
voila, we have found what works. Right. Now that we have validated our theory, our hypothesis, then we're ready to expand our program. You identify what areas you want to uh, you know, move it to. The park service comes in and says, we really don't want you to do it over there, but we have for selfish reasons of, you know, that we can't disclose, we want you to come over here and do this. And you're like, okay, you know, if we're achieving the idea of regrowing and regenerating and getting back towards, you know, uh, an increased level of shellfish, uh, specifically our oysters, then sure, we're going to do our project over here. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That sounds great. We'll do it over there. Um, You know, the questions that I think are most often asked is, you know, what are the materials and what are the potential long-term effects of the materials that are being used? Um, You know, unfortunately, things have to be man-made and created to at least get the basis going. But do you guys have any data or have you been... Have you seen any data of like how long once you have a successful methodology where an oyster reef would overtake that seeded mat so, and then just kind of disappear underneath it and become yeah, not, indistinguishable? Not with the non-plastic alternatives yet because we've just started working on that. Okay. Maybe in like year two or three, right? And we've always said that it takes at least three to five years to make a stable oyster reef. Um, before we can decide whether or not it was successful. So with these non-plastic alternatives, we're doing a lot of cement and jute volcanoes, we call them. Um, We're doing the hot-dipped galvanized mesh bags. We're using biodegradable elements for starting ecosystems, bees mats that are made out of potato starch. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a project that is currently funded by the NEP to look at all of these projects and see if they're leaching any materials into the water that could be harmful to fish, shellfish, the surrounding area, that kind of stuff. Um, So that project just started this fiscal year, so we won't have data until October, but it is something that we're actively looking at. We're not just putting out this stuff willy-nilly and hoping that it works. Um, There is some real science at play here. Oh, so there's no just shooting from the hip and saying, hey, let's use tater chips. And, no, you know. <laughs> that would be a lot easier than um, trying to get all the permits that we have to get for all this. But yeah, we are, we're applying for permits. We have different projects in play, um, grant funding, et cetera. So. And the reason that you moved to these, right, is because you saw the data on the plastic elements that you were using before and you realized that it wasn't the best methodology. So you had to go back to the drawing board and come up exactly. with this new method. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, plastic bags work very well. They are extremely cheap. Um, but is it the best thing that we could be doing for our environment? You, Let's try something different, you know? You spoke earlier when we were just all hanging out. Um, specifically, there was uh, one of the methodologies that was like creating like Franken oysters, and then um, with the uh, metal mesh, you guys were seeing more 
natural yeah, recruitment so, and growth of the oysters. Can you yeah, talk about so that a little bit? The plastic Naltex bags, it's a marine grade mesh, so it's designed to not break down over time. It's also designed to not leach chemicals. They use it a lot in shellfish um, hatcheries and fisheries. So those are that are growing it in the water column, they'll use these Naltex bags. Um, and what I've seen is that sometimes the oyster isn't strong enough to break through the oyster bag. So it'll start to grow in like a V formation around part of that um, plastic, or it'll grow and encapsulate itself around the plastic, which over time, as generations go by, this is okay because it creates a new oyster reef on top, but that first couple of generations don't really do too well. Um, with the galvanized mesh bags, what we're seeing is that there's more room inside of them as the shell starts to settle. The bag stays the same shape. So there's this like pocket of air on top that the oysters can grow on. Um, and as the galvanized mesh starts to break down over two years, the oysters are strong enough to break through that rusting metal um, and create oyster reefs on top. So we're not seeing those split oysters like we were before. What is the combination or is there a combination when you guys are looking and doing the oyster reef restoration as part of a shoreline stabilization project? Because I think I sent you an email or texted you a couple of years back um, south of Castle Windy towards like parking lot five. Somebody did a project um, where they were using bags of oyster and then to create the wave break. Mm -hmm. And then they were also putting in um, mangroves. Right. And trying to stabilize that whole shoreline down through there. Um, is that normal? Because um, I swear I've heard or read that part of the problem with a lot of the oyster um, reefs is being overtaken by mangroves. And that actually is, doesn't yeah. work out good for the oyster. So that's a two part question. Okay. First one you asked, is that normal? And I think the coolest thing about one lagoon and us having a watershed that is 156 miles long mm -hmm. is there is no such thing as normal restoration. Right. Okay, perfect. What we're doing up here in Mosquito Lagoon is not what they're doing in Banana River. It's not what they're doing in Indian River proper. It's not even what they're doing in the Southern Lagoon because we have such a different ecosystem throughout this entire length of lagoon. So we have found through 20 plus years worth of research, thanks to Sea Lab at UCF that putting out oyster restoration materials or either bags or volcanoes or some sort of wave break and planting mangroves behind it works very well to reduce erosion. So when we initially go out, we're measuring how tall the sediment is compared to, you know, a line. Um, and then we go out every time after that and measure how much the sediment is growing and how well the plants are growing. The easiest way to see whether this is successful or not is to go into Canaveral National Seashore, go down to Turtle Mound, and take that little pathway that goes out to the point. You guys know the one that I'm talking about. Yep. Everyone fishes out there, right? Um, all the mangroves on the left-hand side that are waterward were planted by UCF back in 2010. That used to be a bare patch of sand, and wow. they were able to plant all of that and bring it back. 
and now, as you know, it's this beautiful, lush canopy that you get to walk through where you have to duck under trees and you really feel like you're part of old Florida. Um, and that was thanks to their project. And it also stopped to reduce erosion on Turtle Mound, too, because now instead of waves from boats or from wind um, hitting Turtle Mound and eroding out the bottom of it, the waves are hitting those mangrove roots and the mangrove roots are able to dissipate the energy. Awesome. That's cool. Right? Very cool. And I forgot the second question. (laughs) Um, When the mangroves take over the back. Oh, that's right. Yes. Okay. So um, good question on that. There is a UCF grad student and PhD student who is currently working on that. They are testing the pore water um, of the sediment around those mangroves and those oysters to see if the sediment is becoming too acidic to grow oysters. So they are keeping an eye on it. I don't have any data to share um, since it's not published yet, and I don't think she's finished her project. Um, but all the questions that you guys have, we have them too. And the great thing is, is that we have the resources to look into them, and there's always a new batch of grad students looking for a project. So um, if you have any of those concerns, feel free to bring them to me because we can probably answer them. All right. So let's let's shift gears a little bit away from oyster reef restoration, and let's move out of the tidal region of Mosquito Lagoon and kind of wander down a little bit further south. Um, One of your favorites, um, horseshoe crabs. Yeah. (laughs) Talk to us about, I have been asking, almost begging to go on a damn horseshoe crab rodeo to do some tagging. Yes. And I always hear about it. After the fact, social media, and then everybody's like, I'm sorry, it just happened so fast. We just had to get down there. And I'm like, damn it, I want to go so bad. And I really, 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 really want to, like, to be cheesy as shit. I want to fucking find (laughs) a tagged horseshoe crab. Listen, I tag him, and I want to find a tag. When I'm out there and I see horseshoe crabs, I'm like, please be be a tag. Please be a tag. Damn it, no tag. Did you know that you get a cool, like, pewter pin? If you find no. a tagged horseshoe crab and All you right. turn in the tag number to U.S. Fish and Wildlife, that's why I want to find one. I want a pin. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question to that, though. So how obviously it's on its carapace, mm-hmm. right? How are we supposed to are we supposed to handle the horseshoe crab? Is that OK? That's OK. okay. Yes. Yeah. Just okay, as long as you don't pick it up by its tail. It's not going it. to pinch you. I promise. Um, you just pick it up, read the number off, take a picture of it, send it to U.S. Fish and Wildlife with... Um, coordinates on where you found the guy and um yeah, do they want measurements or anything like that if you I had the ability so. they just want to no, they're just saying know, like where is what it kind of range to. yeah and and um so there's a reason for that right they nest on our beaches but they do not do not have a high site fidelity like sea turtles right so we know that sea turtles come back and nest year after year at the same beaches horseshoe crabs don't care um so we just want to know where they're going after they leave us so um for example a couple of years ago we had a horseshoe crab nest um just south of the south causeway bridge up in new smyrna beach on riverside drive mm-hmm. tagged her hurricane irma came through that year next year i go out down to canaveral national seashore to do my survey and there she is laying oh, wow. a new nest with a new male so you have seen uh once i've once. been doing this seven years and i've seen a recapture once so wow. she all the way from like nsb all the way down to parking lot five as the crow flies and made it through like the biggest hurricane that's ever hit florida apparently <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, 
I'm now, now I'm really like, I want to go to a tagging so, event. The reason why we always tell you guys after the fact, or we're like, oh, sorry, it just happened so fast, is because our horseshoe crabs are extremely weird. So we all have the same species of horseshoe crab in North Carolina. Um, North America called Limulus polyphemus, um, but we have different subpopulations. So up on the East Coast in like Jersey and Delaware, they are very tied to the moon phases and to the tides. So they come up and nest on a full moon or a new moon during high tide because the moon is pulling the tides higher up on the shore. Mosquito Lagoon is m- like microtidal. We don't have really tides, so they don't really care about the moons. What's more important to them is the wind pushing that water up onto the shoreline. So we have to figure out when are the winds pushing at at least 15 knots coming from the west to the east. Um, Is it the right temperature outside? So if it's too sunny, they don't really want to come out. Um, if the winds are right, they aren't going to come out. So, is there a time of year, or is this? A- there is a time of year. So, uh, technically, they nest year round in Florida. We mostly see them in January through April. Okay, so, okay. we have regular surveys um, where volunteers go out and look for them. But we have these like blitzes where um, I have an app on my phone and it tells me if the winds are right. And we send out a text to all the volunteers and say, "Get down to Canaveral," um, and they go and survey for them. And that's when we're seeing like three hundred of them. So, we have data that shows that they do not care about the moon. <laughs> so so you've got two very distinct sites that you've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. So you've got a very microtidal site down by parking lot five. Yep. Um, which is, you know, what east of George's Bar and, you know, the very widest area of the lagoon at just about the further south where you'll see any tidal influence of notice. Uh, and then you've got one where, you know, you actually can see significant significant tide difference Mm uh in basically downtown new smyrna beach right um so that's that's kind of weird to me and and they're the one in new smyrna they're actually a west coast breeder right they're not they're not on the east side no so they um they are definitely receptive to winds that are pushing from the east to the west but we haven't seen any crabs at that site in a a a while yeah Yeah. they built a lot of docks out there recently so right okay so do you think that and i you know we're kind of departing from uh your your current role but you you're just our expert sitting at the table now (laughs) uh put your expert hat on um, with the horseshoe crabs, is it the site selection? They like the topography of that beach, and like, have you guys found that there's like a certain grade of beach and width of beach that they prefer, and that's why you find the congregations there? So that is a great question for a grad student. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if you know of anyone. Um, we honestly just picked that site because horseshoe crabs Access. come there and it's easily accessible to volunteers. Okay. Um, we have reports that there's horseshoe crabs that come up and nest on the Spoil Islands um, all the time, too. So pretty much it seems to be a gentle, sloping, natural beach that has a sandy shoreline um, is what they prefer to nest in. Okay. So that would eliminate... Roughly 80% of the eastern side of Mosquito Lagoon uh, as, a, as a nesting site because you have a terminus shoreline at a dike, the impoundments. It's very narrow beach, very steep beach. 
Um, so chalk that up to another reason we need to get some dikes out of the way. Well, it's cool, too, because we get excited when we see 300 crabs at Canaveral, and we walk three miles to see them. Um, down in Brevard, they are seeing thousands of crabs in a much smaller area, wow. um, Parish Park being one of them. So um, they, they have a lot more crabs than we do, and we don't know why. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, one of the one of the things that I think is pretty complex that you know in your position currently you probably have a lot of insight into, and I think would be great to share with anybody that happens to listen to our podcast is the layers, the strata that exist. When it comes to putting together a project mm-hmm. um, or moving the policy needle um, to allow something to happen, right. um, especially when it comes to the Indian River, I mean, you have federal, oftentimes multiple federal agencies. Um, we have what water management districts on the state level, mm-hmm. probably environmental protection at the state level. You guys are part of mm-hmm. EPA, mm-hmm. which you know th- that's kind of the irony I think that that hits me really hard is uh, you know when when I've been seeing a lot of the social media that's been going on lately, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, bombs being thrown that, you know, this is littering, this is littering. Um, all these programs that folks are being critical of are being funded and overseen by the EPA. Like if there's ever an agency that's going to have its eyes dotted and its T's crossed and come back and double check people's work to make sure they're not quote unquote littering we're in pretty good fucking hands. Um, but let's, you know, let's go ahead and, and, and use the horseshoes to, uh, or horseshoes, horseshoe crabs <laughs> to, um, you know, segue. Um, you know, my passion would be to see the, the, the removal, not maybe not complete, because of the cost, um, and I think you could get a similar benefit by just removing sections of the old, basically obsolete dike system um, that surrounds a, a majority of the North Indian River Lagoon and Mosquito Lagoon. Get some of the old historic hydrology um, restored. Um, you know, along the eastern shoreline of, of the lagoon, basically, if you if you called it the back country, basically from Tiger Shoals out to the eastern dunes, water used to move north and south along that as well. But it doesn't anymore because there's so many dikes in the way. And yes, there are a few culverts. But in order to get anything like that done, there's an amazing amount of people that would have to be involved. One of which is the land owner mm-hmm. which most people don't ever put into the equation or understand the national seashore is not owned by the department of the interior it's simply 
Department of Interior is managing that property as a national seashore for NASA. Is that correct? I'm pretty sure. And then with, I know for a fact that the um, refuge will quickly tell you, well, we don't own this. This is NASA. NASA would ultimately have that answer or the you know the authority to tell us to green light such a crazy project um and then where does and i don't even know if you guys are in a position to have like opinions or, or issue opinions um or, or have a policy position when it comes to the overall health of an estuary does that take priority over the health or well-being of one or two species. You, you identify these are the species that this house is going to live under their rules mm-hmm. versus we're all going to live in this house together. Right. Do you do you feel like you've got so, a sense of, you know, is it unrealistic? Is it realistic to have like an expectation that policy can be changed or guided or move in a direction where there's a more holistic approach taken? Yeah, so I, that's a great question and one that is like way above my pay grade currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the great things about this position is getting out into the community and learning more about what's important to them so that we can take it to my bosses and my boss's bosses um, and bring it up to the policymakers in D.C. So I think just getting the information out there about the lagoon is so important. As you guys know, there's a lot of people that move down to Florida and don't even understand how important this asset is. Right. They just think it's a river. <laughs> there's a lot of people that have been there, been here their whole lives and, and don't, don't understand. Understand either, right? So getting the word out to those folks is really what we're focusing on right now on how to live lagoon friendly. So what are what are your main ways right now that you guys are engaged with the public? So um, we did put together a comprehensive conservation and management plan for the Indian River Lagoon um, with our vital signs. So we worked with community stakeholders, um, as well as different organizations from universities, et cetera, um, to put together this plan on what did everyone see is the priority of the lagoon? What do you want to save in the lagoon? And we put together this sign of um, this vital sign wheel that has different things on it, such as seagrass restoration, um, the reduction of littering and pollution, um, getting more money so that we can fund more projects. And we're using that wheel as a guide frame or guidelines to fund different projects that are going on nice how how do how do people become more involved in the process so one of the things that you can do is get involved with your local county meetings and your local city meetings and bring up what concerns you about what's going on with the lagoon Um, i am a a definite advocate that things we can change things from the ground up right it's going to be really hard for us to go to tallahassee and get anything done but if we start talking about it in our city and our counties um, people are eventually going to start listening so for example brevard county passed the half cent sales tax for the save our indian river lagoon program there's no reason why Volusia County can't do the same thing, but I just don't think we're vocal enough yet to have people understand that the lagoon runs all the way up into the Tomoka Basin, right? Our management has been expanded up into the Tomoka Basin, so that includes Halifax River. That means that Daytona Beach can apply for these funds from the NEP for projects, and that the people of Daytona Beach are part of the IRL. So we just need to get the word out there more. This 
comprehensive management plan is it it's public record it is public yes so, so if you have questions on projects or you know what the official view of the lagoon's health is it's it's in that plan it is in that plan it's readily available on our website one lagoon.org that's o-n-e lagoon.org um, and it's right on the front page too and in addition to that we also just put out our 2022 um, annual report okay which has information about all of the projects that we funded, um, along with pictures and data graphs as well. So you can see exactly what we're using that money on. Now, I think it might be in that plan, but kind of circling back real quick to the the oyster mats and cones and volcanoes, is there a plan as those get old or expired to remove those or do they just sit there and it's like well we tried no there there is a plan that is that is one of the caveats in the grant funding is that if it does not work after x amount of years in fact 20 years you have to go back in and take it out okay um so what ucf is actively doing is going back in taking out all those derelict mats and bags and replacing them with the non-plastic alternatives so they're waiting to find funding um, to be able to take that out and replace it so that they're not just leaving a degraded reef degraded again perfect from your experience um you know if ucf has determined that method xyz um is no bueno moving forward, which clearly we know that they have on certain projects. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, well, you know, probably the the students that worked on installing them probably have long since graduated and moved on. So there's a whole new group of underclassmen. There's a whole new group of, you know, uh, graduate students. And somewhere along the way, somebody either has to write a new grant or find a grant to get the funding to get out there and do that work. Mm-hmm. And the funding may be simply enough to get the boat gas and to get the, you know, to, to physically have the infrastructure to get out there and tackle that project. Right. Um, do you have any sense of whether the, you called it sea lab mm-hmm. Um, would C Lab be willing to partner with, uh, you know, a nonprofit if the nonprofit came to them and said, "Hey, you know, we've got, you know, twenty five uh, charter captains that are more than willing to to roll their sleeves up and put their boots on and come out in these four identified areas that we need to clean this stuff up." Mm-hmm. And uh, if 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 you guys will accept our help, we'll be out there whenever you say the word go and they make sure that if there's a permit required or permissions are required and then oh my gosh there's been a solution provided to a problem that's perceived is that something that would work yes absolutely so one of the great things i think about um, ucf and mdc's projects is that they're all community-based restoration so they could apply for habitat restoration funds and pay a contractor to go out there with big trucks and whatever else you need to scrape it back down but instead they're getting volunteers out to use shovels and rakes to scrape these oyster reefs back down to elevation from dead margins 
Orleans. So people are putting in their blood, sweat, and tears, literally, because it's in the middle of summer. It's in June. In July, we do this um, to restore these oyster reefs. So they have more of a passion for it. So we are always, always, always looking for volunteers, either individually or as groups to come out. Boats are always helpful, especially if you don't mind them getting a little bit dirty um, with stinky oyster shoes. <laughs> we really appreciate that. But this is definitely a very volunteer-focused program. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the idea of the one lagoon, I believe, has been brilliant along the way um, to, to inspire the community. Um, in the short amount of time that we've been involved with uh, Marine Discovery Center, mm-hmm. to see the number of people that Marine Discovery has Center has touched, just seeing kids coming out of there that were there for summer camp or, or there for a, a school field trip to people that are just visiting the campus when we've been there has been amazing to see the uptick in the numbers. And it's also at the same time been kind of shocking when you know, we're like, yeah, you know, one of our favorite uh, nonprofits here in town is Marine Discovery Center, and we support them. And they're like, where is that? Yeah. <laughs> is that that place where they do the turtle thing down by the lighthouse? And it's like, no, 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 no. That's a county-funded. Like, they get their funds from the county commission. They're funded every year. No, this is an actual nonprofit mm-hmm. that depends on donations, and this is the work that they do. Um you used to be part of and, and oversee the shuck and share. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Talk about shuck and share because it's a really cool, like I didn't have the full depth of knowledge to understand that shuck and share actually works well beyond the borders of our great little town. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Except for one year, Shuck and Share has almost been exclusively funded by the NEP. So over the last seven or eight years, the NEP has given the Shuck and Share and Marine Discovery Center um, over $500,000 worth of grant funds um, to support the project. So that's very thankful for that because otherwise we wouldn't be able to run without any grant projects. Um, So Shuck and Share started in 2014 as a way to provide a stable source of oyster shell for oyster restoration practitioners. Um, And we've been able... Statewide, correct? No, only in the county. In the county. So we started in Volusia County. Okay. um, And we were able to expand the program past the county borders to six different counties. So now different organizations will run their own Shuck and Share chapter to provide oyster shells for their programs. Um, We're down the coast into India River. We're a little bit north, and we're also over on the west coast, too. Um, So we recycle oyster shells from local restaurants. So if you go out to a restaurant in Volusia County, eat some oysters, they're going to see them back at Marine Discovery Center, um, and then they use those oysters to create oyster restoration materials. So the shuckandshare.org website is a great resource to find out what restaurants are currently recycling oyster shells so that you know if you're going to go get oysters from this place um, that they're going to go to a good cause and not to a landfill. And we know which ones don't so we can go and heckle. (laughs) There's a couple in particular I'll tell you about now. Go tell them we want them to start recycling those oysters. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So explain the process behind 
you know, other than I see big mounds of oyster shells that are kind of stinky back on the, on the yeah. campus. How does it go from my plate to... Yeah, like, w- yeah, what's the sure. whole process? Like, wh- yeah. wh- what's so the methodology? You have eaten some delicious oysters, uh, local, hopefully, if not from, you know, Texas, Louisiana. You leave those on your plate. Your server's going to take them into the back, dump them into the bucket. Um, we pick up the buckets once a week on Mondays using volunteer labor. Um, or we... Ha- um, Marine Discovery Center has a great partnership with WastePro, so they pick up from larger grossing restaurants. Those oysters go into a pile that's labeled by month, and they are cured for at least six months before they go back out into the ecosystem. Um, On average, they cure for about seven and a half months, and they can be on site up to 13, honestly. We did the math one year. Um, So... What's involved in the curing process? Is it just... We leave them out in the sun on a concrete lot that has a lot of vultures in it, a lot of lizards, a lot of spiders, cockroaches. Not great when you're bagging them up, but they eat all of the icky stuff off of the shells. Um, It cleans them, right? So you know summer rains are coming through. Um, Marine Discovery Center doesn't bag shell during the summertime, so it's just sitting there baking in the summer sun, getting rained on. So by the time they do start bagging back next in October, um, it's this like pristine oyster shell that has been cleaned by everything. So there's nothing left on it. Um, So then volunteers come out, they'll turn them into oyster bags. Those oyster bags are then taken down to the site and prepped for restoration. And during the spring months, they are put out onto their final resting spot to grow oysters. So is there a reason behind the whole curing of the the shells? Yeah, for sure. So especially with um, a lot of our oysters are not local, right? Uh, okay. So we're getting them from like Apalachicola, from Texas, boutique oysteries up in the Northeast. There could be something in that water that we don't have here. And if we were to take that oyster from up there and deposit it, perfectly in our water down here, um, we could be transferring something that we don't want to transfer. So by leaving them to cure for at least six months, we're just making sure that there is nothing living left on that oyster shell. Okay. Cause the, the reason I was asking is like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, I, I don't believe they were local oysters, but you know, uh, Lee and Rick's over in, uh, Orlando, big oyster place. You could buy a couple of bushels of oysters on a Friday night, you know, go buy, pick them up. Um, they may have been from Louisiana. They may, and you eat them and you've got all these shells to do something with. Mm-hmm. So the idea of just going, Oh, well, I'll just go throw them off the dock. Probably not a, a good idea then. Probably not, just just in case. You never right. know, right? It could be fine, but also right. there might be something on there that we don't want to put in our water. So. Okay. And so what happens then after the bags are placed in their location? So what's the reason behind the the oyster shells themselves? So the oyster shells are um, great habitat for other oysters to attach onto, right? So we could put out coquina rock. We could put out concrete rubble. We could put out cinder blocks. All of those are going to grow oysters. But if we're able to recycle this material for free and keep it out of landfills, why not use that? Especially since it's natural. I mean, oysters are going to want to attach onto oysters if they can. So we're providing this source for them to attach onto. I call it oyster hotels. <laughs> They're little oyster hotels. So um, since Shuck and Share started, they've kept uh, 6.5 million pounds of oyster shells mm-hmm. out of landfills in Volusia and Brevard counties. Yeah, I, that's a lot. That, that is yeah. the that's a pretty big pile of the yeah. space shuttle at takeoff for all of you space nerds. <laughs> nice. oh, I appreciate that. Right? Yeah, it's a good stat. 
Um, you know, I, I had never thought about it before, but I had recently heard from somebody, you know, why don't we use coquina? Um, and like you say, coquina would work, mm-hmm. but shoot, you know, if you, if you can if you have it. achieve the goal also while solving another issue with uh, reducing the amount of, of waste going into a landfill, you add another win to the column. So you got a win-win situation right. going on. And, and if you want to factor into the engagement, right? So, I mean, having Boy Scout troops come out and put these oyster bags out, uh, Florida Master Naturalist classes, the Audubon Society, different clubs. I mean, the, you, Jam- guys, Jameson you guys are coming out and you helping. Know, we, we, like, we rather enjoyed doing it. Right? So that engagement for us is absolutely huge because if you don't know what's going on in your backyard, you're going to listen to folks that um, are talking very loud. So you need to kind of get out there and see for yourself what's actually going on. Right. And other than, you know, obviously the wave break of creating an oyster shoreline, what, what are the benefits of the oysters organism in the ecosystem for, for those that don't know? Yeah. So oysters are keystone species in Florida. And what that means is that, um, a lot of other things in the area depend on them for habitat protection or food. So oyster reefs um, create habitat for invertebrate worms, for crabs, for fish to forage on. Um, Birds will forage on the oyster reefs. They provide food for birds and fish and invertebrates. Um, And they also provide habitat for mangroves, too. So they are considered to be ecosystem engineers, which means as the oyster reef grows, it's going to accumulate sediment, which is going to grow out the island and create a larger oyster reef that eventually mangroves could get grow onto or different salt bushes and just create this little island where there wasn't one. Now, you mentioned, you know, there's some noise going around. Does one lagoon and MDC have like a don't ask, don't tell policy where like, this is what we're doing. Everyone just go along with it. Or is there an open door where you can like, like, and you've mentioned like my email is open, shoot Mm -hmm. me an email. I'd love to bring your concerns above. Yeah. Is there, is that the best way to do it? You can keep like, absolutely. Come and talk to us. Yeah. I mean, we are definitely in a phase of experimentation right now and we don't know what is going to be the best for the lagoon. That's why we are trying everything we can. So if you have an idea for what you think could work for oyster restoration or shoreline restoration and you want to bring it to us, we would love to chat with you. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the old axiom, teamwork makes the dream work, uh, <laughs> is, is critical in the um, restoration, conservation space. Um, you know, you guys are on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are available through your website. Um, you certainly are available at, it sounds like, a lot of meetings where Policymakers are asking for input. Right. Um, when do you know of the last time that you've heard at a policymaking meeting um, they had a section on the agenda where they went through social media postings to find out what they needed to do um, for uh policy moving forward or are they really only responding and working with folks that come to the meeting and engage them on that personal level 
on the record. Yes. So they are not engaging with anyone on social media. It's really those who are coming to the meetings. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important for One Lagoon to be in the room. Um, a lot of these meetings uh, down in Brevard, I could attend online, but I love being in the room so that if, if there's any questions or concerns that arise, I can answer them right away during public comment and kind of help everyone understand what kind of work we are actually doing. All right. So let's call the oyster work the hard work, right? Um, it's definitely the heavy lifting. The heavy <laughs> lifting. Those oyster bags weigh about 30 pounds and we'll move 900 in a day. So yeah. <laughs> in the spirit of kicking your shoes off and getting your toes in the grass, what's going on with our seagrass meadows? Yeah. Uh, when I first started f- fishing out here, and enjoying the lagoon, um, I've told these guys there. There's places we'll be fishing, and I always say, you know, this used to be an emerald green carpet, right? Um, and we lost that after the 2010 um, cold weather event that led to the algal bloom. Um, and I know I've heard a little bit here and there. Um, and I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it or not, but don't spot I'm, burn, Larry. <laughs> well, there's a spot up on the North Causeway um, that is going to be involved in some uh, propagation of seagrass for um, the purposes of being basically a seagrass nursery, Ooh. so that we can actually start seeing the restoration, the replanting taking from the nursery and coming back out to the lagoon. You know anything about that? I may know a little bit about that. All right. Yeah. So um, as you guys know, seagrass has been dying in our lagoon, um, causing a lot of different issues. Um, So the National Estuary Program has received funding from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to put in place five different seagrass nurseries along the length of the lagoon and fund them for the next five years. So the funding is going towards starting two new nurseries, um, helping to support two nurseries that are already in existence and then funding for a private contractor who is also doing seagrass restoration along the lagoon. So um, annually, those organizations are going to receive $500,000 collectively. um, And we're going to have more funding to focus on priority communities. So working on stormwater, um, different stormwater improvements or septic to sewer improvements using those funds. So yes, in Volusia County, Marine Discovery Center has received grant funding to begin a seagrass nursery on site. They are also working with um, Whitney Lab to start growing clams, um, and they will be using the runoff of that water to grow mangroves and Spartina grasses. So they are going to be the one-stop shop um, in Volusia County for all restoration needs. Um, Brevard Zoo is starting up up a seagrass nursery down in Brevard County. Um, And the other three are Florida Oceanographic Society, which already have a great nursery in place, but we're working to expand it. FAU Harbor Branch, um, who is doing a lot of research on genetics and the best way to grow seagrasses. And then Sea and Shoreline is the private contractor who already has a seagrass nursery, um, and they will be able to provide some of those seedlings to start up the nurseries in Brevard and Volusia counties. 
So this isn't just in uh, Volusia County, the five locations. This is spread. This is spread. The whole uh, yes, exactly. Okay. So, um, as as my executive director Dwayne DeFries likes to say, we are not going to be able to plant our way out of this problem. Um, but this is a really good start to kind of understand it better. So as you guys know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The <laughs> second best time is today, right? Yep. So we are working to start up those nurseries so that we can start figuring this problem out. It definitely can't hurt. I mean, I don't know. No, yeah, I, I mean, if, if you get into the business of growing seagrass, you're going to also probably be in the business down the road of understanding what's good water quality for seagrass even better more so than you know because like right now everything's probably pretty theoretical um well so uh, there's a funny story i like to tell um there's a university of central florida grad student who is doing seagrass restoration as his project and he identified five sites in the lagoon that he wanted to use as test plots for what is the best way to transplant seagrass is it attaching it onto burlap uh, mats like florida oceanographic society is doing is it attaching it onto um garden stakes like fau is doing um is it some thing that we haven't thought of yet, he was going to test all of these out, and he found five sites to do so. And then he went out with researchers from St. John's River Water Management District, and all of his sites already had seagrass growing on it. (laughs) (laughs) So from him going out last year to now, the sites are already starting to regrow seagrass, and he's had to rethink his entire project. (laughs) So kind of a bummer for him, but really good for seagrass. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's a bad, that's, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> um, you know, I can remember, um, you know, little little boomer boomer moment. Um, there used to be so much seagrass, you know, the emerald uh, carpet, like I, I like to call it. And the biggest problem, the biggest beef that anybody had out on the lagoon were prop scars. Yeah, that's what drove the whole. Um, Poland troll zone, all that. And now, you know. Prop, prop scar that mud? Yeah, there, there's some prop scars in, a, in the mud that you might occasionally see. It looks like a furrow now. But, uh, you know, there was a time where down in the Keys, you know, they still do have problems with it. And, and their methodology which apparently didn't work up here because it's two different kinds of grass was they actually would just put stakes in the prop scar to encourage birds to sit on the stakes and take the old post uh, shrimp scampi dinner poop and it fertilized the hell out of the prop scar and the prop scar would regrow Seriously? much quicker yeah <laughs> You I would had see, no idea. <laughs> you would see lines of all these PVC with a T on the top of them, and it just went all the way down the props car. Oh and you'd have anhingas and stuff like roosting on them. And that's somebody did the study, and they figured out that, that was the best way. Like, got wow. the nutrient. But that was more of, a, I believe, a turtle grass kind of thing. And we are nutrient rich. I, right. I would <laughs> yeah. probably don't need to add any more in. Right. right. So, and here in the lagoon, we have what, uh, and when I say lagoon, I know you're thinking as a member of the one, NEP, one, one lagoon. lagoon. <laughs> when I say lagoon, I'm talking mosquito lagoon. Gotcha. We've got um, shoal grass. Mm-hmm. Um, Caladuli right eye. Is shoal grass and manatee grass one and the same? 
No, they are two separate species. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we've got the shoal grass, the manatee grass, and then we have um, our emergent grass, which is the widgeon grass. Yes, rupia. Yeah. And then we also have star grass. Too, okay. Which is a very short stalked little grass that looks like it, the top is a flowering star. Okay. Halophila angulmani. I have my favorite word now. Um, so we're seeing, I've never seen star grass before, except for this year, we're starting to see a lot more of it. Wow. So um, Halidouli is still in the system, um, but we're seeing the Halophila grow up. And then um, what I've heard is that eventually, as the Halidouli starts to come back, that star grass will get outcompeted by the by the shoal grass. So. Isn't it interesting, though, that it's been there in the background? Yeah, and, and we now, just had no you, idea. You, you <laughs> didn't know, didn't see it, you know? Yeah, and we also do have a lot of calerpa, too. So calerpa is a macro algae that kind of looks like a seagrass. Yes. Calerpa prolifera. Hmm. Um, and it's starting to grow in where seagrasses also grow. And it's not a bad thing. Um, it's providing ecosystem services. It's holding on to the sediment so that these different grasses can actually take root. Um, and the nice thing about it, too, is that the manatees don't like to eat it as much, so they're not going to be munching in between those blades to find the different shoal grasses, so it's going to give a chance for the shoal grasses to grow back up. Is there anything that we as uh, you know, folks that like to use the waterways can do as far as the, the grasses are concerned for you know, uh, reaching out if we see grass, or is there anything like Similar to the horseshoe crab? Yeah, um, just don't run over them <laughs> would probably be the best okay. uh, word of advice. So we do have uh, folks going out and doing aerial surveys and then sure. ground-truthing them to see where the seagrass beds are. Okay. So that I think that's being done by St. John's River Water Management District, yeah. Um, so, But that is a good point. As we start doing these different seagrass restoration projects, we may see some more PVC pipes popping up in areas that used to be our favorite fishing spots because they were nice and shallow. Um, just be cognizant and respectful that they might be testing out how to grow seagrass there. Um, and they are working to create a new seagrass bed for you guys to fish in. Right. And, and maybe that it's just marking. They're the, marking the area. And that those PVC pipes are not going to be there forever. It right. is just to show where the project is now um, until the grasses grow. Good, 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 good. Um, gosh, there were, I just had something on my mind and then it, it slipped. Um Clams. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, MDC was going to be also uh, doing some a clam nursery yeah, as well. Yeah, so they are partnering with UF, um, with Whitney Lab up at UF, Dr. Todd Osborne, um, to help him grow some of his clams. So what's going to be really cool about that is they're pulling water from the lagoon. It's going to go into the clam nursery. The clams are going to filter out all of the nutrients, get nice and hungry and nice and big. All of that effluent, aka clam poop, is going to go down into the seagrass beds and um, fertilize the seagrass as it grows. So the seagrass is going to clean the water out in a hydroponic system, and then that outflow is going to be directed to a um, cute little stream that they've created mm -hmm. that is eventually going to go out into back into the lagoon. So they're going to be testing the water coming into the system, testing it after each um, state, and then testing the final to see how well it's cleaning the water. And I think that's going to be a really cool citizen project. Awesome. Um I think that in the past couple of years, more down uh, towards um, the world-famous um, Space Coast portion of the uh, lagoon, 
Um, those, those Southern County Lagoon folk. There's, uh, <laughs> there's been a, a, a clam project that's already underway, mm-hmm. um, and I always, um, I'll reference it in a conversation with somebody, and it always gets a really good laugh that the uh, it's the super clams. Yes. And everybody's like, super clams? I'm like, well, my understanding of why they call them super clams is because they, it's the clam species, like the the brood stock are the ones that survived the cold event and the algal event and, you know, whatever it was that eradicated, you know, a majority of our clams. These are the the survivors, so they're calling them super clams. Has that project been measured for how successful it has yes working or not working yes. or how's it going i guess is so the question i unfortunately i don't have any information about that that is um fully todd osborne's project and i haven't received an update on it um, would we be able to find that probably on your all's website I can make that happen, yes, okay. <laughs> for okay. sure. Um, but yes, the the super clams are the ones that Marine Discovery Center is going to start growing to. Um, so Todd is using MDC as a place to plant them out um, as in support of that project. So okay. he's kind of setting up nurseries all over the East Coast if he can. Gotcha. Well, uh, is there anything else that you can think of? I mean, we're just a few rubes sitting around a table that like to talk about it. Um, you know. Is there anything that one lagoon is doing or would like to see more um, participation from the public with um, before we start to think about wrapping things up? Honestly, stuff like this is so helpful to get the word out there. And and thank you guys so much for having me on tonight. It's really, really been a blast um, to chat with you about the lagoon. And just know that there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. um, And a lot of people have dedicated their lives to saving the lagoon. Um, And you guys included, and all of the fishermen on the lagoon, we are all very passionate about the same thing and working on saving it. So again, if you have any questions or concerns, my inbox is always open. I would love to chat with you about it Um, and just keep having fun and buy a license plate. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I think what I'm going to take from our little chat this evening is, you know, there are answers out there. Um, don't buy into the latest post that you see on the internet. Go to, you know, the actual authorities that, that have the data, that have the criteria, that have the understanding for what might be going on, what the reasoning is behind one location or another. Um, you know, as a layperson. You know, I, I certainly might look at a, a shoreline and go, well, this doesn't make any sense for this to be here. But I've learned stuff tonight that I had no idea about. And that if I would have just been inquisitive mm-hmm. and, and you know, maybe picked up the phone and said, hey, why is this going on at this location? And then you hear the answer. You're like, wow, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, just. Be more willing to listen. Be part of the solution and uh, gain a bigger and better understanding by by doing some research or talking to the actual people that are in the know because the final thing I'll say is they want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. 
Don't jump to conclusions. Yeah, don't jump to conclusions. Take, take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Well, Jesse, um, thank you for coming by and hanging out with us. Uh, we absolutely would love it if um, this becomes something that uh, happens, you know, whenever you feel like you want to come by and yeah, say hey. Absolutely. and absolutely. I know, would love to give you guys updates on really cool projects that are happening in our county. Yeah. That would be awesome. Um, I will say this. Um since it's kind of apparently okay to talk about um, the project that's going on at MDC. Um, I got a kind of a peek at their master plan, and that's where I learned about um, this little lagoon that they're going to build with the seagrass nursery and the clam nursery. And the it, it's basically going to be a, a loop that pulls water from the lagoon, goes through the stages like she's talking about, and then it's going to ultimately flush out through the existing restoration area where they took the fill level back down and restored the marsh, right? But it's going to be done in a manner that it's going to be very aesthetically pleasing. um, And we may just have a really cool new casting area (laughs) dedicated somewhere along there. Don't know if that's going to actually happen, but we're talking about it. Cool. <laughs> so, anyhow, um, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to come out and uh, educate us. We hope that some of our listeners uh, may have gotten some benefit from this. And follow One Lagoon on Instagram. Yep. Um, feel free to email Jesse at... Wales, W-A-Y-L-E-S, at IRLCouncil.org. And if you really want to be a go-getter, check out on their website. They typically will tell you where policy-making decisions are happening. Go out in person. She's probably going to be at one of those meetings. <laughs> Meet her. She's great. And be involved, folks. Be involved. That's all we can ask. And... Uh, that's it. Uh, we will catch up with you out on the water, we hope. Uh, maybe doing something with horseshoe crabs. <laughs> I will text you, I promise. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.